0: I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast. It is December, and I'm once again here to ask you to support this podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by becoming a podcast sponsor. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000, I'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. The only way to do this is to visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and make your contribution. Cato accepts no government money, and we depend on the generosity of our sponsors to help us advance the values of individual liberty limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org podcast sponsor and support the Cato Daily Podcast and the Cato Institute. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 20th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. When a secretive federal court approved surveillance of a former Trump campaign official, the problems with the government's repeated applications for that surveillance set off an important discussion about just how well the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISC, functions. Cato's Julian Sanchez discusses the case and the structural problems that afflict that court. When the government asks for... Some sort of surveillance, or asks for uh, a special privilege from the FISA court. How well are those applications assembled and, and put together, generally?
1: Or are, do we have any way of
0: knowing? You know,
1: in a, a hearing on Wednesday uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, on Justice Department Inspector General uh, Michael Horowitz's uh, new report on uh, FISA and the, the Carter Page investigation, um, there was, I think, a really telling exchange between uh, I.G. Horowitz and Senator Marsha Blackburn. Uh, she said, you know, let me ask you, how common is it uh, to find mistakes like this in uh, a FISA application? He had documented 17 different issues uh, uh, misrepresentations or omissions of varying degrees of seriousness uh, to the FISA court in the application to uh, do electronic surveillance on uh, Carter Page, or rather the four applications uh, to do surveillance on Carter Page. And I I think she asked that question expecting the answer, well, it's incredibly rare. Um, And this would demonstrate that something really egregious had happened in this particular instance. Uh, But Horowitz's answer, uh, quite, quite candidly, and perhaps to his credit was, uh, you know, he can't really say because this is the first time this uh, very thorough probe of the process of getting a FISA on uh, former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. This was the first time they had done this sort of deep dive, that they had delved uh, this thoroughly uh, into an application to kind of kick the tires. And so he had to say, you know, I sort of hope uh, that it that it is quite unusual. Um and you know, if not, that would suggest some kind of cultural problem. Um but I think that that to be very worrying that you get a report like this that is extremely bad, I think, for the FBI, that that is certainly uh with respect to the renewal applications at least. Uh uh, documents some really inexcusable uh, misrepresentations to the court. Uh, and in one case, actual alteration of of, of you know a, a document um, to essentially you know, falsify facts, um, and then to say, "Well, is that representative? How how bad is this relative to a normal FISA on someone who is not?" Uh, you know, a politically connected person in a case everyone recognizes is hugely politically sensitive and likely to be the subject of congressional hearings. Um, and if the answer is, yeah, we, we just don't know uh, if if this is normal, um, you know, that should send a, send a little shiver down your spine. Now, with respect to some
0: of the uh, orders that Fisk has approved in the past, one of them was broad surveillance of records for
1: uh, virtually all Americans. Yeah. So the 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 there are a bunch of problems with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. I think structurally. Um, so a normal warrant is issued. Uh, you know, after an ex parte hearing, if you're going to do a search on someone or wiretap their phone, obviously that initial argument has to be secret because you don't get very good uh, information if you announce publicly that you're going to wiretap someone. Um, but it's always done with an eye toward, in the in the criminal case, um, eventual criminal prosecution. And even if uh, you don't end up ultimately charging anyone on the basis of uh, wiretap evidence, uh, the target of wiretap surveillance of what's called a Title III wiretap, that's the, uh, the statutory authority for a criminal wiretap investigation, uh, has to be informed about it after the surveillance end. So you have this kind of you have know, a couple of things. One, you have this sort of back-end process, where when people are drafting that warrant, they know the point of this is to get evidence I can introduce in court, um, at which point the uh, defendant's attorney is going to have, uh, is going to be entitled to discovery uh, and disclosure of all sorts of uh, exculpatory evidence, and that if, uh, you know, we haven't uh, you know, properly represented the facts on the front end, there's a chance that whatever evidence we got is gonna um, get thrown out of court and sort of invalidate all, all the all the work that went in on the front end. Um and also, of course, you know, the 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 courts that are hearing this sort of exist in the context of uh just sort of Public deliberative process, where so if they make a uh, a ruling on a, a Fourth Amendment question uh, or on a statutory question involving wiretap law, that is in a sense part of a a public conversation, both you know among judges, things get appealed and uh, sent to a higher court, but also uh, with legislators who might say we, that ruling is you know, bad, and so uh, if that's how they interpret the statute, we need to pass new legislation to correct it. Um, there's a, a huge statute called ECPA, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, um, that was essentially a response to Supreme Court rulings holding that uh, email uh, lacked constitutional protections. Fortunately, that that um, seems to have been uh, superseded by uh, later developments. Um, but. Uh, you also have sort of the community of law scholars. You might have right, a vigorous debate in, uh, you know, among other lawyers, among the legal academy, uh, saying, you know, the actually, if you you know, dig into the history, this interpretation of uh, the original uh, public meaning of this constitutional phrase is uh, is not what the court thought. Um, it's embedded in this uh, larger process of sort of legal evolution, uh, and so the FISA court has you know, all I think is a function of the fact that FISA surveillance is normally permanently covert. Um, The public has never seen a FISA application until Carter Page's case. Uh, And that one we've only seen in in a fairly heavily redacted form. Um, There's never been anything remotely public like this kind of intensive investigation of a particular FISA process. And so the result of that secrecy on the one end, I think, is that um, the incentives facing uh, uh, the people sort of developing the investigation are a little bit skewed, and there's a, a, an additional point I, I would make on on that in a second, and also that um, you know the, the FISC, as as we now realize, because of the um, the the bulk call records collection disclosed by by Edward Snowden originally, um, developed in effect its own uh, sort of secret common law, if that's not a complete oxymoron, uh, and so. You know, when they agreed to approve uh, this sort of essentially indiscriminate collection of, of Americans' call records on um, the theory that all of these were somehow relevant to an investigation, um, that was based on a previous decision involving uh, Internet metadata um, from a couple of years earlier, which presumably was based on decisions prior to that. Um, and one of the things that's clear if you look at, again, the sort of unprecedented fact that we now have quite a, a lot of published FISA court opinions. Um, you know, it, it's clear that one, um, they're operating in their own sort of self-contained uh, environment of making rulings and setting precedent based exclusively on arguments from the government. Um, so over time, that tends to uh, accrete um, a, 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 a body of, uh, you know, again, kind of very specific Uh, case law for one court um, that's, again, based on essentially the government getting its way and deciding what, what cases to appeal. So combine
0: the fact that the one FISA application that we know the most about has significant problems in the way that the government presented its case, combined with the generally secret nature of the FISC itself... And the fact that they are largely separate from uh, adversarial law as it's practiced everywhere else in in the United States Uh, without giving up the government's ability to engage in completely legitimate uh, surveillance in order to protect uh, Americans – What's the fix there? because you don't you don't necessarily want the public to have broad access to all of these opinions. You don't uh, necessarily want to hamper uh, certain law enforcement investigations. But at the same time, there has to be a process by which uh, these applications are vetted in a better way than the even highly vetted, uh, application uh, that we saw that had such significant problems.
1: Yeah, I mean, so one thing I think to focus on is, uh, so before an application even reaches the court, there is um, what is, in, in as far as it goes, a, a somewhat rigorous process um, known as the Woods Procedures. So these were uh, implemented in the early 2000s after the FISA court discovered that uh, several of the applications submitted to it had, had contained uh, uh Fairly, fairly serious misrepresentations that they ended up essentially barring the FBI agent uh, who had been the affiant on those applications from uh, from essentially submitting anything to the FISA court, which will basically end your career if you're working on uh, so that, that sort of stuff, intelligence matters. Um, and so the Woods procedures uh, were designed to verify that the information in application to the FISA court all matches... Uh, some document in the FBI's underlying case file. So, if you say, uh, you know, this is what we got on a, a transcript or what someone said to a confidential informant, do you actually have notes or a transcript from the interview that that validates that that's what was said? And there were some failures of the Wood procedures uh, that uh, Horowitz identified here. Some cases where you know statements were made that that weren't properly documented or the claim in the application was somewhat different from uh, what was in the case file, but most of those were not really very serious issues. Um, you know, you didn't do, you, how much money was Christopher Steele paid. There wasn't documentation of that dollar figure. A lot of it was stuff that's not very important. The serious issues, and they're mostly not with the initial application, but with the uh, the renewal applications as the case developed. Um in the initial stages, they they essentially didn't have a lot of information. Um, and it's worth noting, a lot of the things that, in terms of the sort of public and media discussion, people think are, uh, were kind of outrageous or symptoms of abuse um, are not things Horowitz really took issue with. Those are just normal for FISA. So the fact that a significant part of this application was uh, based on a sort of single source um, the steel, this notorious steel dossier that was based on kind of second information and that um, Steele himself had been hired to do op- opposition research, which might have suggested a bias. All of that, Horowitz acknowledges, is just normal for FISA. By FISA standards, that is not you know, the problem as as the IG at least sees it. That's not a rules violation. Um, that's just how FISA works normally. Um, the problem is that as they continued investigating um, and turning up less limited information and finding that some of it contradicted uh, representations they'd originally made, uh, they essentially did not take account of those things and go back and uh, and amend their initial representations uh, to say, actually, you know, for example, one of Steele's subsources gave a somewhat different account from uh, what was in the Steele dossier and some of the claims that he passed on to Steele, he himself regarded as sort of gossip or jokes. Um, and the problem is that the Woods procedures are not well designed to catch uh, things that are left out of the application as opposed to inaccurate claims that do make it into the application. Uh, you cannot fact check a fact that does not make it in. And that's part of just the fact that this is not an adversarial process? That's part of, I mean, of course, that's that again is true of... Uh, you know, any wiretap or warrant application. application yeah. um, though, again, I think it probably has some effect that there is an expectation on the criminal side, not that there aren't, you know, bad search warrants on the criminal side that are drafted, um, but there is at least an expectation that um, if you have gotten this under false reasons, that may come back to bite you when um, this information is presented in, in public in a, in a public uh, legal proceeding. Um, you know, I think one of the, the things that's clear we absolutely need to do um, is this kind of deep dive audit on a sort of random sample of, um, of FISA applications for a couple of reasons. One, we want to know how common problems like this are. Is this some sort of outlier case or is this just sort of A a normal distribution of of misrepresentations and emissions, Uh, but also in part because I think that may be one of the ways of ameliorating the problems we find. That is to say, to the extent that one of the issues here is um, nobody really expects the tires to be kicked. Um, That you know, if you've if you've said something in the initial application and it turns out that's not quite right. well, you know who's gonna know if you don't decide to tell the FISA court um and so the prospect of you know, sort of random deep dive audits uh might encourage um a, a little bit more um uh, uh, you know th- care in looking for kind of potentially exculpatory facts um i think you know one of the one of the 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 factors here i think may also be um you know, even talking about exculpatory facts is kind of borrowing language from sort of criminal procedure. Um, and it's important to stress, I think this may be a factor in why the renewal applications in particular um, were ended up getting sort of progressively worse, um, is there's an important difference between FISA wiretaps and criminal Title III wiretaps. Um so when you get a criminal wiretap, there is a, the purpose of the surveillance, and there's the showing you have to make to a court. And under Title Three, those two are pretty tightly aligned, right? The purpose of uh, a Title Three wiretap is to gather evidence of a crime, ideally, that you can uh, introduce in court to, as part of a criminal prosecution. And then the showing you have to make to a court is um, probable cause to believe that this Surveillance will uncover evidence of a crime that um, is, or has, or, or is about to occur. Um, so, the criteria for whether this wiretap was successful um, is basically the same as the criteria for justifying it in the first instance. And so, if you um, do an initial, let's say, thirty days or sixty days of a wiretap, uh, and then you're saying was it successful? The, the the you know, the evidence that you get that is, uh, say, so if you find evidence of a crime that is both, um, right, justific- uh, you know, justification for the thing being successful, uh, evidence that it has fulfilled its purpose, and also what you would sh- need to show a court to say, um, yeah, this is, is justified to continue this surveillance. And under FISA, those two things, the purpose and the showing, uh, kind of come apart because the Purpose of FISA surveillance is to gather foreign intelligence information, which is very broadly defined. Whereas the showing to the court uh, is that, in the case of a U.S. person, um, that they are an agent of a foreign power, meaning, again, this is a, a, speci- a definition specific to U.S. persons that they are knowingly—it's uh, it, a complicated definition—but the, the core one here is um, they are knowingly engaged in clandestine intelligence activities at the behest of a foreign power, um, and the thing is foreign intelligence information is a fairly broad category so that you know a lot of people who are not knowingly engaged in uh, clandestine intelligence activities might well frequently have phone conversations that contain foreign intelligence information right if you have a businessman who has uh, you know contact with foreign uh, uh, you know uh, uh, bu- uh, foreign people in business or foreign government officials um those conversations might very well have uh, elements that qualify as foreign intelligence information without that, uh, you know, the U S person and being a foreign agent. And I think that disconnect may, uh, you know, play in here because if you are not looking right with an eye toward prosecution, but with an eye, with an, an eye of a, a sort of counterintelligence person, and you're saying, has this surveillance been productive? Um, has it fulfilled its purpose? Um, you might look and say, "Yes, there's, we got we got some things here that that, that are foreign intelligence and, and that may be valuable to the government in various ways." Um, but unlike the Title III case, the criminal investigative case, um, answering yes to that question, right, does not necessarily validate the initial premise that yes, the target of the surveillance was a foreign agent. Um, so I think again, maybe especially if you have uh, uh, folks who have a background working Title III cases, um, that may be a source of uh, of kind of not not quite seeing um, that you haven't validated initial showing. Because after the court has once accepted, okay, you've cleared the bar for a uh, probable cause to say this target's an agent of a foreign power, I think probably the focus shifts somewhat to, all right, what foreign intelligence information are we getting? Um, and it can, you know, maybe easy to then sort of neglect that Um you may be getting that without actually bolstering your original representation. And indeed, if you look at what officials involved in reviewing those renewal applications told uh, IG Horowitz, uh, you know, one of the things they say is, yeah, you know, when we looked at the renewal applications, when we did the vetting for those applications, all the new stuff, the new claims that were added were in bold, Um, you know, sort of like track changes for for a legal submission, and so the vetting process then focused on those new claims. And the obvious problem there is, um, if that's if that's what you're focusing on, you're not going back and saying, you know, and in some cases, you know, they would have had to go trawling through the case file to find perhaps the 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 elements that conflicted. It's not a review, right? But in other cases, you know, it might have been more clear based on even just sort of. Things in the newspapers um, that some of those initial representations were wrong, uh, but they're not sort of going back to stuff the court has already accepted and saying, "Well, this is what we said in September or October, but now you know six months later, um, did you know do those claims still hold up? Can we still, you know, honestly say this is our best assessment of uh, of what the facts are?"
0: Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can support the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast with an end-of-the-year gift. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you.